0: Good morning, everyone. (laughs) You know, I don't want to disagree with anything Brother Will says, because I know what he does part-time, you know. (laughs) He could shoot you seven times and then you might feel the sting before the last one hits you. We are truly glad to be here, and I'm gonna say this and I mean this with everything. that I could come to this church. (laughs) I mean, I'm serious. This has been good. Music it was outstanding, both services, uh, these songs you guys sang, they were just really powerful mission messages. In fact, the one sent me out, I said, we should have used that the first, the service. probably might have blown somebody's heads off some, I don't know, <laughs> but you know, it, was probably, it was all right. My name is Clem Morgan, I am, uh, just to give you a little bit of a bio and then uh, share some things with you about the mission and then want to share a message with you, and just invite you to, for us to worship together and. Uh, Focus on God's Word and what He's doing and what He wants to do in our lives and what He's doing around the world. I was born and raised in eastern North Carolina. My mom and dad, his name's Reverend A.C. Morgan, was a Free Will Baptist pastor over there in uh, eastern North Carolina. He and my mom planted churches. When my dad said he built churches, that's what he meant. I mean, he built them with his hands, and I helped him. So I learned, I will not say, and some of you can relate to this. I cannot say I learned how to do a lot of that. I was slave labor. Does that make sense? You know, and I was not interested in learning. I was just doing what I was told to do, and so we worked very hard. But he did build, literally build several churches with his hands, set a wonderful, wonderful example for me and, uh, and for our family, or four of us in our family, four kids. One thing I want to note about my mom and dad that I think is uh, exemplary of their godly spirit and integrity Although he was in ministry as long as I remember. And I never heard him nor my mother say anything bad about anyone in the church. And I, I just know and I know they, you know, people treated him poorly sometime. But one time I knew my dad was a calm man. Now when he was young, he was a fighter and you know, but God got a hold of his heart, transformed his spirit. But I knew someone had stepped on his last nerve. Uh, I was sitting in the car, and my dad got in the car, and he slammed the door, and he said, one of these days, I'm going to beat someone up, and I'm going to go downtown and pay for it. (laughs) I'm just glad it wasn't me. (laughs) But what a godly man, introduced us to missions, opened our minds up, and had missionaries in our home, spoke to us, told inspiring stories, but most of all about dedication, loving God, serving Him, being faithful in all things. I accepted the call to be a missionary to Africa when I was 15 years old. I was at summer camp, and some of you who know Free Will Baptist history, the name uh, Mom Willie will ring a bell with you. She was one of our pioneer missionaries in Panama and Cuba, and we often said that whenever she spoke, you're going to answer the call to something. I mean, you may not follow through, but she was an inspirational speaker. Answered the call to missions, went on through high school, graduated from high school, Went off to Free Will Baptist Bible College, now Welch College over in Nashville, Tennessee. And almost within the first week, I met this interesting young girl from Africa. Happened to be my wife. She is now. She wasn't then. And quite frankly, I didn't think she would be. But she was truly one of the most interesting people in the world. But I was intrigued by her, and I can say that in all honesty and sincerity, that uh, just getting to know her, you. there was something very special about her, her walk with the Lord. And it was challenging to me. I was not walking with the Lord, I have to tell you that. But at that time in my life, it was truly what I needed. And if we can say a meet who came along, not just in that time, but through our ministry. And I think it's very safe to say we're in ministry together. We love serving and being in Africa. Our hearts are always there someone asked me said do you think of Africa I said every day and I will tell you there's not a day that goes by that I don't think of Ivory Coast West Africa and the wonderful people and and living there and the ministry we had there after serving 30 years there we went to France for three and a half years and then in 2010 October 2010 my wife Lynette got sick and just had a physical crash and we had to come back to the states And totally unexpectedly, our general director then, James Walline, stepped down, and our board called and asked if I would take that responsibility or step in as general director, sort of interim. And I told them very clearly, I said, you understand, I came back to the States for, for Lynette so she can find some recovery. And if that, you know, I'll do what I can and do the best I can, but if it gets in the way, then you have to understand what my priority here is. And they understood that. And I shared this in the morning, first service, and I want to share it with you, that the day that they asked me, she was in bed, really barely could get out of bed in those days. And I went in and told her, I said, you know, I don't know what we want to do here, but the board has asked me if I would step in as interim director. And she said, and this is a reflection of her walk with the Lord, she said, for such a time as this. And I could not you know, make that connection at that time, the the time I thought it was for me to care for her. But she says it's time to serve, and this is where I am, and we're very happy here, but let me tell you, tomorrow the board said, you know, we love you, but, uh, you know, uh, you might want to go back to the field, We'd, we'd be gone. Just let me say, you probably wouldn't see me again for about four years. But we're very thankful for this opportunity to be with you. We, we, we do serve with Free Will Baptist International Missions, founded in 1935, sent out our first missionary, a single lady, Laura Bell Barnett. I hope you know a little bit about this history. She went out and served for over 20 years, almost 25 years in India and set that pace for other missionaries to come. If you go to India today, you're going to find over 500 Free Will Baptist churches, over 17,000 Free Will Baptists met this morning, 11 hours ago, before we even out of bed. That passage that talks about from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same really means something when you understand missions and what God is doing around the world. And he truly is at work. We're thankful for our missionaries. Right now we have 74. We hope to see that number increase. God's doing some wonderful, wonderful things around the world. Our missionaries, though, need support. You understand that. And each one of them go, they have the responsibility to go to our Free Will Baptist churches, share their needs, and ask people to consider praying and, and uh, supporting them. That means you, our Free Will Baptist people, we count on you. So I hope that you'll do that. Get exposed to the missionaries. There are books that we have, little directories. And, you know, there are many ways, maps and things that you can get to know them. But I just want to challenge you, every one of you, and don't think because you're young or because you're old that, you know, that you would get out of this because each one of us has a role to play. And you take those names and you look at those missionaries and you pray and say, God, what do you want me to do? Because obedience giving is the right giving. We don't try to tell people what to do or how to give. We just say obedience giving. And if we do that in following the scriptures, then we know and we sincerely believe, even in the local church, if people are giving obediently in the local church, all the needs of that local church will be met. If we give in obedience giving, all the needs of the missions will be met. We will be able to continue to take the gospel to the nations. So I want to just ask you to think about that, pray about that, ask God, what is my Role, What is, God, what do you want me to do? If you have your Bibles today, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll read verses 4 through 9. Um, now, Brother Will, it is 1104. What time, what? When you're done. When I'm, but that, you don't even know how dangerous that is. I'm just telling you. I mean, Seriously but I will do my best to get you out before 1 o'clock, I promise. That don't have to. Work. In Africa, when we go to church, it's you go when the sun's about like that and you leave when it's about like that. That's pretty good, you know. I mean, that's a pretty good range. But that means people come at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and then they leave at 12, 1, you know, whenever we're finished. And so, you know, if you come and you say, I'm going to stay until it's finished, then that's what you do, right? right. Don't leave before I do, that's all I'm asking As a missionary, the question that's often been asked me, and I think is a relatively reasonable question, how many people have you led to the Lord? Is that a good question? I mean, it's a little personal, but honest. in all honesty, I think as a missionary, and you know, that's what we're sent out to do, is to win people to Christ. But I want us to ponder that question today from a whole different perspective. Now, if you look at 1 Corinthians, if you start off in chapter 1, this is a church that Paul had planted, the church at Corinth, Obviously, if you, you know, study anything about these churches, Corinth was probably the prime church for every problem you can think of, and they threw in a few extras that they made up. I mean, they were troubled people. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul starts off addressing something that's very troubling to him. Some of you are saying that you're Paul, and you're of Apollos, and you're, you're Cephas, you know. I mean, each one of you going to talk about who led you to the Lord, that's the argument. And Paul just passionately says and asks them, Was I crucified for you? you know, Were you baptized in my name? This is just a bit of a foolish question, and he gets a little harder in it when you look at, at chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. He said, For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Hmm. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor." For well, we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. Now, I want to tell you a story today, and it's sort of, it's a five-part. If you want to think of it, it's sort of like a drama, okay, and it's has five parts, and you'll just sort of see it, and I'll tell it to you. The first part is rookie missionaries, Okay. Think of rookie missionaries. I don't know what you think of when. Now, just let me say this. We did not wear khaki shorts and pith helmets, okay? So throw that out the window. That's not where we were. But we did start as rookie missionaries. That means we arrived on the field in 1978. We've been with the mission since 1976. We did a year of of deputation, went around around to our churches asking for support. After we secured our report, we left the the United States in September of 1977, went to a year of language study in Albertville, France. If you know anything about the Olympics, that ought to ring a bell. That's where the Winter Olympics were, I think it was 1996. Beautiful place to study. Finished our language study, went to Ivory Coast, got on a boat. got to tell you this story because we got on a boat, now, I don't know about you, but I get seasick, okay? just you, you can let your imagination run wild at that point. We were supposed to be on there 10 days. It wound up being a 20-day boat trip. I was seasick six of those days, okay? Enough said. It was not a very pretty picture. But we went to sleep one night on that boat, woke up the next morning, and we were anchored offshore of this beautiful palm tree-lined seashore. And one of the stewards walked by, and I said, what country are we? Because we were supposed to be in so many different countries, and we stayed, overstayed, and so we really sort of lost track of where we were and where we were supposed to be. But as he passed by, he said, sir, what country is this? And he said, that is Cote d'Ivoire. I'm going to tell you right now. We shouted, and we laughed, and we cried, and, you know, we probably danced a little bit. Don't (laughs) tell anybody, but. And I say that because I want to put this in a block for you, every one of you. The peace that passeth all understanding. The joy that the world cannot understand when you do God's will. And if I had one little envy that I could throw for you today and say, I wish for you that you would know the peace that passeth all understanding. The joy of knowing that you're doing God's will. And that's what we felt at that moment. We entered the country... Started off, her mom and dad were pioneer missionaries there. Medical doctor opened a medical clinic up in the northeast corner of Ivory Coast among the Lobi people, which are the most primitive people in Ivory Coast. Of the 72 tribes that were there, they were the lowest on the totem pole. That's why he chose to go there and start a hospital. We arrived in August, they left in December. So here we were, rookies, and all of a sudden we had, we're strapped with the responsibility of running the hospital, learning the language, learning the culture. So one day, this is what happened. We, you know, you get sort of weary, I'm going to be honest, uh, all the responsibilities, so we decided to take a trip. We had a four-wheel drive Jeep, it was during rainy season, not the best time, but we had some friends about 50 miles away from another mission, and they were going back to England. So we thought, well, we we'll are going on a little road trip with the kids. We had two boys at that time. One was two years old, one was four years old. So we decided we'd go on this trip, and I'm telling you, we did mudding before mudding was cool. I don't care what you've seen These were mud holes, you know, 100 yards long, and you just get in there and hope that that four-wheel drive gets you to the other end. Well, we made it safely to the place where we were going, a little village called Batier. We went over there for two reasons, to visit this family, and also to buy pork. We could not buy pork in our town, didn't have any, so we decided to go down the market. We went down the market, we looked at the pork. The pork was moving, if you get my drift, and we decided it could just stay right there because we weren't going to take it home with us. We got through with the time there, with and we were getting ready to leave after a wonderful time of fellowship with them. And they were going back to England, and they said, we have two parrots. Would you like to take these, you know, would your boys like these two parrots? Imagine that. Two boys, two years old, four years old. Yeah, 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 you know, so they were all excited. And they said, oh, by the way, they talk. So, okay, well, that's cool. You know, not have got some talking birds. So, you know, that's fun. So we get these birds in the car, and we start back over these roads, and I'm telling you, we found out in a hurry what their vocabulary was. Hello and goodbye. Every time we hit a big boom, boom, you know, hello, goodbye, hello, goodbye. And I'm thinking, these birds are not going to make it home. I can tell you right now, this carries on, because there are a lot of bumps along that road. We go back through the same muddy road. We came to one spot we had maneuvered pretty easily in the morning, and we Got right in the middle of that thing, and, I mean, that four-wheel drive Toyota Jeep just stuck. I mean, it was stuck. Well, I think that's cool. I'll get out and lock in the four-wheel drive, and, you know, we'll spin right on out of here. No wrong. You can bury a four-wheel drive truck, I want to tell you. It was sitting on the bottom, and it wasn't going anywhere. And all of a sudden, I mean, you're in the bush of Africa, and you don't see anyone around, and all of a sudden, you know, there's 20, 30 people standing around. Where did it come from? And they tried to push and pull, and they dug, and they even got two oxen and tried to pull it out. They could not get that thing out. It was heavy. So here we are in the middle of nowhere. You know, We think, well, we're about 10 kilometers from home. If we walk, we might make it home before really dark or the next morning, whichever it was. And we decided to do that. So here we go, two little blonde-headed boys, hair, those boys had wild hair. I'm just telling you, it was blonde and it was fuzzy and it would go crazy. So here were these two little blonde-headed boys and we'll walk along there with these two birds. Imagine that. So we got to take the birds with us. I said, Be quiet, you okay? I'm not in a good mood right now. So we are walk along there and we literally prayed for a miracle. We had gone that 50 miles over. We were almost on the way back home, and we had not seen one moving vehicle that day. I know you can't imagine that, but that's the way it was in the bush there. We'd seen bicycles, a couple of mopeds, but I'm talking about not another car, not another truck. So we prayed, said, Lord, you know, send us some help, if you will, please. And just in a few moments, I mean, we hadn't walked probably even an eighth mile. We hear a, a motor, you know, a vehicle. and go, you know, this is a figment of our imagination, surely. But then along came this truck, and it was the bread truck. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to you, but there was one bakery within 50 miles, and they would bake the bread in the morning, and then they'd travel around and, you know, go to the villages and sell it. And he had finished the day, and he was on the way back, and here he comes by, you know, with this truck. And I'm telling you, this thing was beat up. In French, we would say, Vilain bagnole. It had been hit more times than Muhammad Ali. I mean, that thing was—it was messed up. It was wired together, welded together. But it was running, you know, and he had come through that same stupid hole that I was stuck in. He had to. So he stopped, and he asked the most intelligent question he could have asked. Is that your vehicle back there? <laughs> yes. But he was a friend, and he said, uh, can I take you home? I said, certainly, it would be great. So Lynette gets up in the front with the two boys. I get to sit in the back with hello, goodbye. So all the way home, you know, it's me and hello, goodbye. We'll bring the curtain down sort of on scene one, okay? Scene two. We were trying to learn the language, as I said, the Lobby language, learn the culture, and we were seeking a way to reach out to the people. Now, in missions, when you talk about mission strategies, a very, very simple strategy that we try to apply is you go to meeting places or you create meeting places. You know, you want to meet people. You want to talk to them. You want to build relations. Now, in Africa, the best meeting place you can go to is the market people come to market and they walk and they'll walk 10 15 kilometers that's 10 miles walk to get to market and to sell their goods and it's a big social event people come and so we said you know we'll go to market days that's a good thing to do go to markets and that's a good place to meet people we went to five different villages every week god began to bless people getting saved but in one particular village, and I'm going to give you the name, and you're going to hear this name several times, so please remember it. In the village of Nyamwe. I want to hear you say that. Come on, go it. Yeah, that was very good. I like that. He, he threw the nyam. <laughs> but that's the way it is, Nyamwe. And so we went to the village of Nyamwe. It's a very unique village. As you're driving to the village, there's a big, big kapok tree. Anyone know what a kapok tree is? Uh, we call them snow trees because these pods would break, and it would be like put... You know, really like it snowed. It didn't snow there, trust me. But this big kapok tree, so we called it the Leaning Tower Pizza, you know, because it would hang out all over the road when we walk in. We'd go there and we did village evangelism. We'd just set up a little table, put it under a little straw, lean to, you know, and people would come by and we'd share the gospel with them. In this village of Yamweh, people would come and we would share the gospel. And as we shared the gospel, it was something very interesting happened. Please put this part in your mind as you're thinking of this story there were several people when we were sharing the gospel with them they said oh there was a couple that used to come through here and they would share you know she was a nurse and she would take care of our sores and he would tell us a lot of what you're telling us today Eddie and Sandra Payne anyone know them Eddie and Sandra Payne were some of our first missionaries. They had gone into the villages not just to preach but also to do some medical help and then have opportunities to share the, the, share the gospel with people. So that, that, you know, you just realize, oh, the gospel has been sown, right? Are you with me? He that soweth and he that planteth and he that watereth. Keep those things in mind. So we went to this particular village and God began to move and a church sprung up in this village of Yamwe people responded it was wonderful to see and through this particular market day ministry we were able to see five churches planted just out of that one ministry so we felt like that was a good way to start 1985 was a dark year for us Lynette and again I say this respectfully and lovingly for my wife she has the gift of helps and mercy and she gives and gives and she just absolutely ran out of energy had a physical crash And we had to go back to the States in 1985. We were not expecting it. Things were going well in the market ministry. I had some discipling ministries going on and other things. And, you know, we were all excited about what God was doing. And boom, just like that, we're gone. Well, while we were away, God began to move and direct us in a whole different direction and said, We need leaders for our churches. You know, we had churches, and we didn't have trained pastors. So God directed us to work with one of our fellow missionaries, and some of you might know him, Mike Cousineau. Uh, and we opened up a Bible Institute up in Buna uh, in the northeast corner there. And we began training pastors. Now, one of the things we did, and this is scene three, if you're following me, in scene three, we opened up the Bible Institute. One of the things we did with the, these young, young students is they would come to class Monday through Thursday. And then they would have to go out on Friday. Every Friday they'd get on their little mopeds and they'd go out to the village and they would minister in these villages. On Saturday, have the Sunday morning service and they'd come back to school and we'd start classes all over again. So it was a very, very, very busy schedule for them. We sent them out two by two. Now, I'm going to see if you're paying attention. One of the villages they went to was the village of There you go. I've got my man here. He can say it. So they went to Nyamwe. God continued to bless. These men were train, being trained at the Bible Institute, going right out there to the village, having the opportunity to share what they were learning. You know, and then they'd come back on the weekend and we'd get their stories. It was a great time of sharing. God was really moving in young way and the church began to expand. And I don't know what happens, but some of the worst enemies of the church <clears throat> are Christians. And a group came in there, and I don't know where they came from, uh, and they just literally destroyed that church, and so by the year two thousand, basically the church in Yemwe was gone. Go back to the Market Day Ministries and the Bible Institute students and Eddie and Sandra Payne, and you know, and you just see that thing sort of crumble, crumble. In two thousand two. A civil war broke out in the country, in Ivory Coast, and some of you follow that, and some of you probably saw it on the news, and some of the things about those 161 people that were, you know, held captive by, you know, and in between the the rebel forces and the government forces, and they were, you know, it's just a big battle going on there. The war continued, and missionaries left, and the churches were left on their own. Interestingly enough, Not one of our Will Baptist churches closed. One shut down for a short period of time, but has been reestablished. But none were, were permanently gone. What was interesting, though, during that next four years, 2002 to 2006, I was able to go back in and continue teaching at the Bible Institute. You don't want to hear those stories. But, wow, to see these young guys, young kids on drugs, alcohol with ak 47 That's not a good feeling, I want to tell you. There were some moments that were very, very scary for us. But God gave us strength each time, protection each time. We continued to go in and try to encourage these Bible Institute students. And you know what happened to the church during that period? It grew. The church grew because of faithful servants. Let's move to scene four. 2005, a meningitis epidemic broke out in the country. Over 300 people died right there around that hospital area. And we're sitting there and we're thinking, surely we can do something about this. Now, the HANA Project is the humanitarian branch of Free Will Baptist International Missions. We do humanitarian projects. We said, surely we can do something about this. So in 2006, we took a team of about 20. We went up to the Dorpo area where we had lived, where the hospital is. And in a six-day period, we vaccinated 12,000 people. Against meningitis, twelve thousand people. Insane schedule, unbelievable amount of work. And every village we went into, we preached the gospel. We give the vaccinations. We share the gospel. Guess what village we went to? short turn again. Yemwe. We went to the village of Yemwe, and when we finished our time there at Yemwe, the preaching there were about five people who came up to us and said you know we're part of the church that used to be here in Yamalei would you please come back and help us would you please come back and help us and i said well i don't live here anymore but i will talk to our national pastors and i am positive and sure that they will come and they will do the best they can to help you so i talked to our past pastors and they said, sure, they would be willing and ready to go back. So over the next year, 2006 to 2007, they started going. 2007, we come back with another team. we do more vaccinations. we do other things in medical trips and you know, care. And we went to the village again, went to Yemwe, went back to Yemwe again. And what was amazing, now under the leadership of our national church, there's a group there of about 15, 20 people. Go well, wow, that's good. We go back in 2008. Go back to Yemway. What's happening there? There's about 50 people there, and they're growing, and they are facing some persecution even from the village. They're burning. They're building these little mud things with straw roofs on them, and the people are coming by and burning them down and tearing them down. But they stay faithful. We go back in 2008. There it is again. It's still growing. You know, they're still resisting, and they said, you know. But we're going to be faithful. We go back in 2009, now there's about 75 of them, and they're still growing. And they said, you know, we're getting tired of them burning down our buildings. So what we've decided to do is we're going to build a block building, and we're going to put a tin roof on it. And that way, maybe they won't burn it down. I said, well, that sounds like a good idea. And we have a plan program that we work alongside of our churches. If they put up the walls, we put the roof on it. The mission will do that. That's our way of participating with them. And they said, well, we, we want you to do something for us, if you would. said, the king, uh, he lived, the regional king lives in this area. And if you will go and ask him, he will put his protection on this building and no one will bother it. I said, well, we can do that. So now picture this. We're on our way over to visit the king. And in Africa, it's okay for men to hold hands. And the pastor reaches down and he holds my hand, which means he's got something important to tell me. And as we're walking along, he's holding my hand. He says, pastor, by the way, he said, You know what the king used to do? Anyone want to guess what the king used to do? Bread truck driver. (laughs) Thirty years later, the man who picked us up on the road was there sitting in that place of power. And we walked in there and, you know, went through all the formal greetings. I don't have time to tell you how all that works. But after through the greetings, you don't speak directly to a king. You speak to a spokesperson, and they tell him, although he understands everything. But at any time, the king can point at you and greet you particularly and say, you know, point at you, and you can speak now directly to him. So we went through all the formalities and everything, and then the king looked at me. He said, Pastor, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. And, you know, we chatted a little bit, and I said, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. I said, do you remember about 30 years ago? And he just started laughing. He said, oh, yeah, I remember. He said, those two little boys and those birds and, you know, your vehicle straight. wasn't very funny then. But he remembered very well. He did not know that he was in God's plan. You know that? He didn't have a clue. But I said, King, I would like to ask you to do something for me. He said, anything you want, Pastor. I said, we're building a church here. We're going to put a roof on it and I would love to have your protection on that building. He said, Pastor, as long as I am king, as long as I am alive, no one, no one will touch that building. And I'm telling you, if you go to Yumaway today, you're gonna see a thriving, booming, growing church there. Now I have a question. It's a rhetorical question, but it's a thought-provoking question. What are the chances That 30 years later, the bread truck driver is going to be sitting there as king. What are the chances? And the answer is 100%. Do you understand me? We serve a God. He saw that 30 years earlier. He set that bread truck driver there. That day, he put him into the place of a king 30 years later in order to carry out and execute his plan. We did not see it. We could not believe it. We could not understand it. Now, Let's hasten to the end here because I want to tell you this is what I'm trying to say to you. Imagine we're free will Baptists. You don't have to imagine you're free will Baptist. Imagine as a free will Baptist, as we do, and we believe that one day we're going to stand before God. Now, I don't think it's going to unfold exactly this way, okay? But this is so we get a picture of what Paul was saying in this particular passage. You stand before the Lord. I'm standing there, and he, God says, Clint, you know I sent you out the Yumway on market day ministry. Yes. Did you go? Yes, I did. How many people accepted the Lord out there? How many people followed me out there? And I could say 20 or 30, you know, in the ministry, the Market Day ministry, there were probably 20 or 30. And I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good number, right? If you could say you won 30 people to the Lord, I'd be, you know, I'm happy about it. Now, so if you can imagine, just think about that in your mind right now. We're standing on this stage. So those 30 people that we won come and stand behind me on the stage, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. But listen to me. Then Eddie and Sandra Payne walk up here. Remember, they were there before I was. And then we have our Bible Institute students, and they come and they stand up here. And then you have our national pastors come, and they come and they stand. And then we have those of you who prayed for the ministries in Africa, and you come and stand. And let me tell you, at that point, you start becoming very insignificant, but very significant all at the same time. Because what he asks of us is obedience. If you are a planter, you know if you're going to sow that seed, be the best sower that God wants you to be. If you're going to be the guy with the watering can, be the best waterer he wants you to be. Perhaps you're even going to be the one that's going to go in there and dig out the roots and pull out the stones and clear the land so it can seed can be planted. But remember this, he, the harvest is his. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. It is not mine. I'd love to tell you how many people I won, but I really don't know because I'm telling you, it's his harvest. And I don't know how many people played a role in getting those people to come to know Christ. But we are part of God's plan. He has a role for each and every one of you. There are no exceptions. If you're a born-again believer, there are absolutely no exceptions. He has a role for you to play in reaching the lost. And what I want to challenge you today is you get down before God in your heart. Get down on your knees before him and say, God, what is my role? What do you want me to do? Do you want me to go dig up some ground and plant, you know, so someone can come along and plant a seed? I'll do it. You want me to plant a seed? I'll do it. You want me to water a seed? I'll do it. And give me the humility that it takes to be there when the harvest comes come and not strut around and say, look what I've done. It is his harvest. And he has called us to be laborers. He said, look out on the fields. The harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. I'll close with this illustration. I know I'm running time. You'll be okay, I hope. But I want to share this illustration because I think it makes this point so clearly. We had a speaker at one of our national associations, 400 believers sitting there. I'd actually have to invite him to come. He steps up to the pulpit and he says, The harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Is that true? Those of us who were listening said, Yes, it's true. He said, It's not true. Boy, that got my attention. I don't want to tell you. So he repeated again. The harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Is that true? And more people are listening now. And more people said, Yes. He said, It's not true. So he repeated a third time. The harvest is plenteous, but the labors are few. Is that true? And 400 people said, yes, it's true. And he says, it's not true. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm thinking I have to go on and invite him. But I let him explain. He said, let me tell you. When Christ made, you're saying it's true because Christ said it, it is true. You're saying it because it's in the Bible, it is true. He said, but let's put it in context. When Christ made that statement, there were approximately 500, or 250 million people on the earth at that time. There were 500, give or take a few disciples. So when he said it, there was one believer for every 500,000 unbelievers. The harvest is plenteous but the laborers are few. And we can make the point for us today, now the population of the earth is 7 billion people. One billion of them at least claim to be Christian. So that's one unbeliever for every six unbelievers. And the problem, and this is what he said, the problem is not that the harvest is plenteous and the laborers are few. The problem is that the harvest is plenteous and the laborers are lazy. What's your role? What does he want you to do? Let's stand and pray. Our Father, we truly are thankful for the power of your word and what Paul said there. We are so guilty of that sometime. We do love to lead people to you, but they're not ours. They're yours. It's your harvest. And each one of us has a role in that process of bringing people to know you. And we pray today that you would help us, everyone, to come before you and say, Lord, I know my role, I'm not doing it. Lord, I don't know my role, but I'm willing, and I want to be a part of that harvest. I want to be part of those workers in the field. Help me, Lord, to be obedient. As we sing this morning, I just ask each one of you to come, put yourself before the Lord. Say, okay, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not doing it. I don't know what I'm going to do, what I'm supposed to be doing. But I'm going to ask him, and he's going to show me, and I'm going to do it. And I want to invite you, as we sing this morning, to come. If God's speaking to your heart, please come. Surrender yourself.